it's highly appropriate that the Academy has devoted a lecture in the current series to a topic pertinent to the Easter Rising, and that it has done so in this week, this week of, can we call it the real centenary, or the solar centenary, perhaps? Uh, Desmond Ryan was probably the first significant historian of the Easter Rising. Throughout the decade of 1910 to 1920, he was a young man, 16 years old in January 1910, so that in his formative years, he was being shaped by the intellectual life of the period. It was only at the end of the decade that he began to contribute to, contribute to Ireland's intellectual life, and he continued to do so over the next half century, producing a body of work that in various genres, biography, autobiography, memoir, history, editions of the writings of others, chronicled various aspects of the history of the Irish separatist movement, including the Easter Rising and the participants therein. Now in this lecture, I will look at several of his key texts pertaining to the Easter Rising and consider how his understanding and assessment of the Rising developed in these writings, especially as regards the role played by his mentor, Patrick Pierce. But to appreciate the writings, we need to know something about the man. Desmond Ryan was born in 1893 in Dulwich, London. His father, William Patrick W.P. Ryan, a farm laborer's son from County Tipperary, was working at the time in London as a journalist. In 1905, W.P. Ryan moved to Navan County, Meath to become editor of the Irish Peasant newspaper. His family, including the 12-year-old Desmond, followed in the spring of 1906. By year's end, however, they had moved to Dublin, owing to the fact that W.P. Ryan's editorial line, in particular his advocacy of lay Catholic involvement in the management of national schools, had aroused the ire of leading churchmen, resulting in severe clerical pressure being imposed upon the newspaper's proprietors, whereupon W.P. Ryan bought out the title and continued it in Dublin for several years under various mastheads. Desmond Ryan esteemed his father as a model of journalistic and intellectual integrity, and he was deeply influenced by his father's anti-clericalism, concern for social justice, and sympathy for, for socialist ideas. After studying under the Christian brothers at Westland Row, and also, he tells us, much more beneficially, acquiring a self-education in the National Library, Ryan was one of the first 40 students at St. Enders, the progressive bilingual school founded by Patrick Pierce at Cullenswood House in Ranelagh and moved in 1910 to the Hermitage in Rathfarnham. By the time Ryan had matriculated at UCD, where he read Irish, English, and French, his father and the rest of the family had returned to London. So Ryan was one of several former St. Enders pupils now studying at UCD who boarded at the Hermitage and assisted in various ways in the work of the school. Ryan did some part-time teaching and also served as Pierce's secretary. In later years, Ryan would claim that he had a closer relationship with Pierce than anyone else had, with the exception of Pierce's brother, Willie. Sometime in 1912, Ryan and the other UCD students boarding there were recruited into the Fianna Aaron circle of the Irish Republican Brotherhood by the St. Enders drill instructor, Con Colbert. This actually occurred some 18 months before Pierce himself was sworn into the IRB in December 1913. And Ryan records how Pierce at times scolded them 
for their unexplained disappearances when they skipped off to IRB meetings or to secret drill sessions. Enlisting in the Irish Volunteers at its inception in November 1913, Ryan served in a volunteer company based at St. Enders. In the three months prior to the Easter Rising, he assisted in manufacturing hand grenades and shotgun cartridges on the grounds of the Hermitage. During the Easter Rising, Ryan fought in the GPO. After the surrender, he was interned for three months in England, first at Stafford Detention Barracks and then at Frongok. Released at the end of July, he returned to Dublin and successfully sat his BA examinations in October 1916. Although he never formally resigned from the volunteers, he became increasingly less active and during the troubles of 1919 to 21, confined his activity to occasional concealment of documents or ammunition or providing a safe house to volunteers on the run. He moved into journalism and from late 1919 to spring 1922, he worked on the reporting and sub-editorial staffs of the Freeman's Journal and he reported on some of the grimmest episodes of the troubles attending at the scenes of killings perpetrated by both sides in the conflict. Ryan began writing the history of the Easter Rising almost immediately after the event. Toward the end of Easter week, with the GPO under heavy attack and the fires from neighboring buildings approaching ever closer, Ryan confided in Pierce that his only reason for wishing to survive was to write a book about it all. A few weeks later, while detained at Stafford Barracks, he jotted down some notes about his Easter week experiences and those of two fellow detainees who had fought in the Four Courts Church Street area. The notes were smuggled out of Stafford by a visitor. Back in Dublin that autumn, Ryan expounded the notes into a fuller account of his personal experience of Easter week. The original rough notes were subsequently incorporated by Ryan verbatim, he tells us, into the text of his 1934 autobiography, amounting to an impressionistic eyewitness account of events. Later again, in 1952, he submitted the expanded account as part of his witness statement to the Bureau of Military History, where it stands out for most BMH witness statements for the vividness of its descriptions and the immediacy of its tone, having been composed so close to the events. Now, Ryan was designated by Pierce as his literary, success, literary executor, and upon his return to Dublin after the Rising, he began to fulfill his responsibilities in this role. Over the next eight years, he edited a comprehensive compilation of Pierce's writings. I have them up here. The first two titles both appeared in 1917. The first one, The Story of a Success, was Pierce's own history of St. Enders, an explication of the pedagogical ideas informing his conduct of the school. Pierce had written several articles on the subject for the school magazine on Mockwave, chronicling the period up to May 1913, and he intended expanding them into a book. In a codicil to his will written on the eve of his execution, he expressed his desire that Ryan, as his literary executor, compile these articles into a book and that he write a concluding chapter bringing the history up to date. Also published in 1917 was the first volume of themed material drawn from Pierce's writings, plays, stories, poems. Two more such volumes followed in 1918 and in 1922, 
and this material was supplemented by Ryan's biography, The Man Called Pierce, which was the first book-length biography of Patrick Pierce. All these titles were then incorporated in 1924 into a definitive five-volume edition published by the Phoenix Press of Dublin, and, and, and added um, uh, volume in, in Irish, Scrivini was, was included, and the story of a success and the man called Pierce were combined into a single volume. Now, when we look at the time of publication, you can see these were coming out in the build-up to the War of Independence. There's a gap between 1919, go back to that, and 1922, when the last of these volumes appears. The Pierce family was involved. The copyright was held by Margaret Pierce, Patrick's mother. And Ryan's biography then was very much an authorized biography. And along with the entire set of publications, there definitely was a propagandistic purpose considering the times that were in it. An immediate and enduring effect of these publications, of Pierce's writings and of Ryan's sympathetic biography, was to consolidate, to give credence to an already existing perception that Patrick Pierce was the principal leader and ideologue of the Easter Rising. Subsequent historiography has demonstrated that the Easter Rising was the work of a small secretive cabal within the IRB of whom the two most important were Thomas Clark and Sean McDermott. And it was they who were the principal organizers of the insurrection. It was the two of them who recruited Pierce, somewhat belatedly, into the cabal, regarding him as a suitable frontman for the conspiracy, exploiting his considerable skills as an orator and polemicist, and his public profile within nationalist circles as a headmaster and an activist within the Irish language and broader Irish Ireland movements. Actually, it was McDermott who first identified Pierce's potential in this regard, and it took him some time to persuade Clark, who thought Pierce too moderate. And it was in this role as the chief communicator, the public face of the conspiracy, that Pierce was chosen by his fellow conspirators as president of the provisional government of the Republic. But in the late 19-teens and early 20s, little, if anything, was known to the public about the role of Clark and McDermott. So it was natural that Pierce, as the highly visible propagandist and the eventual president of the provisional government, was regarded as having been the principal leader. The appearance of the publications, these publications, also had the effect of establishing Pierce's ideas as the official ideology of the rising the body of ideas that motivated the men and women who went out to fight and kill and die in Easter week. They also had the effect of closely associating Ryan with Pierce's legacy, and especially with one long-enduring element of that legacy, the interpretation of the Easter Rising as a willing blood sacrifice, a hopeless stand in arms by men willingly seeking martyrdom as a way of keeping faith with the dead generations and inspiring generations to come, all suffused with Roman Catholic religiosity of Christ-like martyrdom. Some commentators have identified Ryan as having initiated this interpretation. A closer reading of the text, however, indicates a different picture. There does appear an elaboration of the blood sacrifice theme in these early works, but it does not appear in Ryan's hand. In editing the first volume of the collected works, 
the plays, stories, and poems. Ryan was assisted by Patrick Brown, a Catholic priest and professor of mathematics at Maynooth, who, as Porig de Bruyne, would become an eminent Irish language scholar and was the brother-in-law of Sean McEntee and uncle of Maura Vacantee Cruz O'Brien. Brown wrote an introduction to the volume in which the blood sacrifice theme was specifically articulated and Pierce's writings interpreted within the context of Catholic religiosity and Christian martyrdom. Brown wrote, those who look in these pages for a vision of pagan Ireland with its pre-Christian gods and heroes will be disappointed. The old divinities and figures of the sagas are there, but everything is overshadowed by the Christian concept and the religion that is found there centers in Christ and Mary. The ideas of sacrifice and atonement, of the blood of martyrs that makes fruitful the seed of the faith, are to be found all through these writings. Nay, they have even more than religious significance and become vitalizing factors in the struggle for Irish nationality. And Brown goes on to say that in Pierce, the ancient and medieval and modern Gaelic currents meet so that future generations will see him as a poet who sang the songs of his country, as a soldier who died for it, as a martyr who bore witness with his blood to the truth of his faith, as a hero, a second Cuchulain, who battled with a divine frenzy to stem the waves of the invading tide. So here we see the definite connection made between Irish nationalism, a willingness to die for Ireland, and Christian sacrifice and martyrdom. In Brown's eyes, Pierce is a kind of Christianized Cuchulain. And in that last sentence, with its assertion that Pierce bore witness with his blood to the truth of his faith, it's hard to discern which faith is meant, his Christian religion or his Irish nationalism. Or perhaps the two have simply become one. Now, two years later, when he wrote his biography of Pierce, Ryan sounds a quite different note. The Man Called Pierce is really not so much of a biography as a memoir and an apologia. The opening line reads, Pierce was never a legend. He was a man. So three years after the rising, Ryan is saying that Pierce is already becoming a figure of legend. And he states that two Pierce legends have emerged, one fashioned by his detractors and the other by his admirers. Ryan derived the title of the book from one of the detractors, Sir John Pentland Mahaffey, the Unionist provost of Trinity College, who famously in November 1914 suppressed the College Gaelic Society for their organizing a meeting marking the Thomas Davis centenary to be addressed by, in Mahaffey's words, a man called Pierce, a supporter of the anti-recruiting agitation. Now, as for the legend created by Pierce's admirers, Ryan says, circumstances and a too literal interpretation of his writings have already lent considerable color to the legend, the legend which depicts Pierce as the somber Napoleon of some lost cause, as a relentless idealist haunted by the necessity for a blood sacrifice to save the Irish nation. Rejecting these two opposing lessons, that of the detractors and that of the admirers, Ryan sets out to describe the man called Pierce, the man 
not the legend, drawing from his own relationship with the man as student, assistant, friend, and confidant. So we see here Ryan rejecting and describing as legend the depiction of Pierce as enacting a blood sacrifice. It would appear that he was consciously distancing himself from what Brown had argued two years previously. Throughout the book, Ryan seeks to humanize the man called Pierce, but he does so in a way that he uses such superlatives that he creates his own counter-legend against the other two. Pierce, he says, was the most human of human beings, critical, humorous, proud, tender, purposeful, scrupulous, honorable, charitable. Remarkably few faults marred his character. Indeed, to write the literal truth, as one may write who saw him in his own home, in every mood and vicissitude, as a teacher, a writer, a propagandist, a captain, he was a perfect man whose faults were the mere defects of his straight and rigid virtues. Well, that sort of thing has gone out of fashion. Today, I think we would be suspicious if even an authorized biographer was to describe his subject as a perfect man or woman. To us, we no longer believe in such creatures as perfect men and women. And we want to know something about the faults, the failings, the errors of our great men and women. It is precisely such traits that humanize them for us, make them real, make them something like our own imperfect, uncertain, and coping selves. But Ryan was writing in a different age, an age that believed not only in heroes, but in heroes without flaws. Such encomia were part of the intellectual life of the period, and they were not confined to Ireland or to the heroes of Irish physical force nationalism, but were more widely current especially in regard to soldiers fallen in battle. In 1920, the year after Ryan's book about Pierce, there was published a three-volume biography of another Irish-born public figure who had died violently in the same year as Pierce, 1916. Lord Kitchener, the most celebrated British soldier of his generation, Secretary of State for War, who was killed five weeks after Pierce's execution when his, strict, his ship struck a mine off the Orkneys. Kitchener's biographer in 1920, George Arthur, wrote that the sentiment with which the British public esteemed the, the old soldier amounted to a personal devotion for which nothing comparable could be found in recorded history. And I quote from the biography of Kitchener, for a parallel one must perhaps go beyond all history to the mythical heroic age, to the realm of saga and of legend, the mystery that in death wrapped around the blameless soldier and the persistent disbelief in that death belong to the same order as the passing of Arthur. So they have their authors, we have our Cucullans. And the biographer's assessment of Kitchener is devoid of any faults not even those that are the defects of his virtues. Now, in The Man Called Pierce, Pierce does address the subject of Pierce's, uh, sorry, Ryan addresses the subject of Pierce's attitude to physical force. He says, Pierce was always a separatist, a Republican, and an advocate of physical force. 
He always believed in an ultimate appeal to arms, claiming that no subject nation had won its freedom otherwise, with the exception of Norway, where the threat of force had been implied. For a long while he held that the Irish people should accept any measure of home rule which guaranteed the national integrity and use it as a step towards complete independence. And Ryan argues that these convictions derive from Pierce's understanding of history. Now, whatever one may think about these principles, either in general or in their application to Ireland, I think that we must concede that such a point of view is quite distinct from martyrdom and blood sacrifice. Ryan's argument is that Pierce believed in the ultimate necessity of armed insurrection, of physical force, to achieve national independence. He wanted to lead such an insurrection, but he wanted to win such an insurrection. Prepared, like any soldier, to die if such should be his fate in the fight, but planning and intending to win. Now, by the time that definitive five-volume collected works appeared in 1924, Ryan was no longer living in Ireland. He was a supporter of the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty, influenced by his understanding of Pierce's willingness to accept home rule as a stage towards full independence. But he soon became deeply disillusioned by the bitter invective of the treaty debates, reflecting that, quote, the two political groups had begun to hate each other far more than they had ever hated the black and tans. Distressed by the intemperate partisanship of the Freeman's Journal in support of the treaty, he abruptly resigned from the paper when it published an especially malevolent cartoon depicting Eamon de Valera as a mouthpiece of Erskine Childers. Going to London on an intended brief visit, <clears throat> he was there when the Civil War broke out and chose not to return to Ireland, making Ireland his home for the next 17 years. And he poignantly describes a morning that autumn when he read in a newspaper an obituary notice that he had written for the Freemans shortly before his resignation on Michael Collins. And he had known Collins um, when he was living in Collinswood House after the rising, uh, after his return from internment. Um, he was, uh, Collins had an office in the, in the house, so, so Ryan knew Collins personally. He had written any number of such obituaries for the Freeman's morgue, but the obituary of Collins was the first that he had seen in print. Having written the first biography of Patrick Pierce, Ryan now turned to another leader of the Easter Rising, and in 1924 in London, he published the first biography of James Connolly, setting out Connolly's combination of socialism and Irish nationalism, while also asserting Connolly's socialist internationalism and his place in the international workers' movement. Ryan himself had been sympathetic to socialist ideas since the time of the 1913 Dublin lockout, and the remainder of his career was informed by a Republican socialist outlook. In the late 1940s, he edited and annotated three volumes of selections from Connolly's writings. After returning to Ireland for the first time in 10 years for a week-long visit in 1932, Ryan was inspired to write an autobiographical memoir published in London in 1934 as Remembering Zion. 
It deals with his 16 years in Ireland, opening with his boyhood arrival in 1906 and closing with his departure on the eve of civil war in 1922. The title of the book is a double illusion. There is, of course, the, illusion, the biblical allusion to the Psalms. Upon the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. The other allusion is Joycean to a passage in Ulysses, which Ryan quotes as his epigraph for the book. The quotation appears in the Proteus chapter of Ulysses as Stephen Dedalus strolls and ruminates along Sandy Mount Strand and recalls his time in Paris the year before and his meeting there with an old Fenian who was given the name Kevin Egan and was based on Joseph Casey, who was a principal in the Clerkenwell prison explosion in 1868, whom James Joyce actually did meet in Paris in 1903. And the quotation from Ulysses runs, <clears throat> in gay Paris he hides, Egan of Paris, unsought by any save me. Weak, wasting hand on mine, they have forgotten Kevin Egan not he them, remembering thee, O Zion. Later in the book, Ryan engages in some lengthy praise and defense of Ulysses, a rather brave thing for an Irish writer in the 1930s. But both of these illusions, the biblical and the Joycean, address the experience of exile, the exile remembering the homeland. And as you read the book, you get the sense that the Zion that Ryan remembers and quite lyrically evokes in many passages from his London exile is not only a place, Ireland, but also a time and perhaps a stage in his own life. Remembering Zion marks an alteration in Ryan's assessment of Pierce. Ryan still judges Pierce to have been a great man he says he soared over the provincial and anglicized Ireland of his early years and confounded the time-serving politicians of his later days. He asserts Pierce's flaming idealism, his sincerity and unselfishness and fundamental health of mind. And in a passage that reveals how difficult it still is for him to depart from the trope of flawless greatness, he says that Pierce was a man so great that it goes against the grain to have to search for flaws in him. But for all that, he does catalog flaws in Pierce's ideas and character. He finds that some of Pierce's writings descend to platitude and engage in rhetoric so excessive as to invite misinterpretation. He deplores Pierce's harking on bloodshed and says, that this note was struck with a frequency that became monotonous in Pierce's speeches and recurred with an almost sinister frequency towards the end. He describes Pierce's worship of military discipline as fanatical to the point of absurdity. And finally, he summarizes, no honest portrait can hide certain shadows a Napoleonic complex which expressed itself in a fanatical glorification of war for its own sake, an excess of sentiment which almost intoxicated him both on the platform and in private ventures, a recklessness in action, and the narrow outlook of a very respectable Dubliner 
who has never left his city or family circle for very long. This is the very worst that the devil's advocate will be able to advance against Patrick Pierce. Well, all told, it's quite a lot. Now, Ryan's altered judgments derive, I believe, from several factors. The maturity of years, the disillusionment with the Ireland that emerged from the independent struggle, the freedom from a propagandistic purpose, a cosmopolitan outlook associated with physical remove from Irish provincialism, and also, and quite importantly, a certain pacifism based on his socialist principles. A pacifism that was widespread within the British and European left in the 1920s and early 30s, at least up until the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. Ryan and his wife moved to Ireland <clears throat> on the outbreak of another war in 1939. A strong supporter of Irish neutrality, Ryan became active on the left wing of the Irish Labour Party, and for a time in the 1940s, he edited Torch, the organ of the party's Dublin Constituencies Council. It was in 1949 that he published his history, The Rising, the complete story of Easter week, the culmination of his long research and thinking on the subject. By the 1940s, a considerable amount had been written about various aspects of The Rising, and Ryan, in his research, reviewed and assessed all of this material augmenting it with what primary sources were then available, and interviewing fellow veterans, including, crucially, members of the IRB. <clears throat> he thus produced the first comprehensive and dispassionate history of the Easter Rising based on all available sources. An important feature of the book is the ample and detailed consideration Ryan gives to the planning and organizing of the Rising. The first seven chapters, comprising one-third of the total, is given to the events leading up to Easter Monday, which are described in considerably more detail than the subsequent accounts of the events during Easter week in the various theaters of battle. Ryan begins the book with the decision by the IRB Supreme Council in mid-August 1914 to organize an insurrection during the course of the European War. This is actually one of several details that never before had been placed in the public domain, and reviewers at the time remarked upon the new material, this new information about the planning of the Rising that Ryan was coming forth with. Ryan identifies the seminal roles of Clark and McDermott in fomenting and organizing the insurrection. He discusses the various parts played by them and the other members of the IRB Military Council. Crucially, Pierce is no longer the central figure, but takes his place as one among several conspirators involved in the planning and preparations. Ryan examines such topics as the efforts to secure German assistance, Roger Casement's missions to America and to Germany, and he sifts through the pros and cons of such contentious matters as the supposed kidnapping of James Connolly by the Military Council in January 1916 and the origins of the Castle document. He describes how the conspirators deceived Owen McNeil, and he examines the circumstances surrounding McNeil's countermanding of the mobilization. Now, the book then closes 
with Pierce's order to surrender. Interestingly, Ryan does not deal with the courts martial and the executions of the leaders in his main text, but consigns them to terse appendices. It's as though he wants to put the blood sacrifice theme to rest. So his book on the complete story of Easter week concludes with the end of the week, not with the aftermath of the week. And I will conclude this lecture with the way that Ryan himself concluded his book. The last sentence reads, the rising was over, one of the most arresting and indubitable examples in all history of the triumph of failure. Thus, Ryan coined a phrase that succinctly epitomizes the interpretation of the rising as a failed initiative that nonetheless inspired a national resurgence that resulted in the convening of the first Doyle, the redeclaration of the Republic, the War of Independence, and the establishment of the Free State. And this phrase that Ryan coined, the triumph of failure, had a particular topical resonance at the time it was written. The book appeared in mid-April 1949, just a few days before that year's Easter Monday, which fell on the 18th of April which was not only the 33rd anniversary of the Rising, but it was the day that the Declaration of the Republic of Ireland, which had been enacted by the Interparty government the previous December, the Interparty government of which Ryan's Labour Party was a part, came into force, Easter Monday, 18th April, 1949. The coinage thus referred to a vindication of the stage's approach to independence to which Ryan himself subscribed and which he had attributed to Patrick Pierce. But it was achieved without the final bloodshed that Pierce had thought necessary and that Ryan himself had come to abhor.